Good to see you guys. The text we're in is First Samuel chapter two, and I want to I want to pick up with verse twenty seven, but it's really, really, really important. Got to review this. We did this last week. I want to review it again. This um, this arrangement that you see, I, don't, I think you won't see it here, but this arrangement you see it. The board is I mean, it's this big word is the theocracy of Israel. Because Israel at this point does not have a king. So God is the ruler of their kingdom. That was the whole intent when they asked for a king, which we'll get to in chapter 8 and beyond in a, in a little bit. But the key element in making this work were the priests. And as you know, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and one of the tribes, the Levites, was a, was a priest. That was their whole They did not get a land grant. All the others did. They're, they were in charge of the sacrificial system, ceremonial law, and they administered 48 Levitical cities. You have to go back to Joshua for that, but I hope you remember that. And those 48 Levitical cities were just peppered throughout the country, all of the 12 tribes. And so every Israelite was less than 10 miles from the Levitical city because the responsibility of the Levites, the priests, was twofold. Number one was to teach the people the law. I put that as number one. That's a very important responsibility they had. Last week and a little bit the previous week when we studied Hannah, my argument was Hannah perfectly illustrates how the law was supposed to work. And she was taught the law. And the only assumption we can make is that she sat under a Levite priest at the, one of the Levitical cities and learned the law. And that's just important always to remember that. Because the people of Israel were to know the law of God through the priests. What you're familiar with is the second responsibility they had, which was to administer sacrifice. And I put the word ark there, because that's the ark of the covenant. You know, you know what that is. That's the ark of the covenant. And that's where the mercy seat, the blood would be sprinkled on that once a year at Yom Kippur. But throughout the year, in the outer court of the ark, tabernacle is where it was located, is where the offerings were made. The burnt offering, the peace offering, etc. These were extremely important in those early chapters of Genesis of Leviticus, because that's how the Israeli, the Jewish person, maintained a relationship with God. So in this system to work, the priests are the most important. God's the head, he's the theocratic leader, he's the Lord. But for this to work, because the ark symbolizes how God dealt with their sin. God atoned for their sin. Atone in Hebrew means to cover. God atoned for their sin. But the Levites also had the responsibility. God delivered the law. The law was to be taught by the priests. So they are really, really critical. What if they don't do their job? What if the priests are corrupt? This whole system is going to work. And that's why where we are right now, we're focusing on the two sons of Eli, Eli is a descendant of Aaron. He's from Ithamar, one of the one of the, the, the sons of Aaron. But anyway, he, so he's, he's critical. He's a really important person because at this point in Israel history, the, the tabernacle is at Shiloh. And I gave you a map. Uh, it's in your packet. Glenn's wrote it up a couple of weeks. He can't do it this week because he's in the hospital. But that map shows you where Shiloh was. It's in the Ephraim land grant on the east side. That's where the tabernacle was. And that's where Eli is. So Eli is in charge of all this over, overall. 
And he has two boys, Hafti and Phineas. Good guys? Horrible. They're corrupt. They're immoral. And last week we read about what they did. They took from the peace offering, they took the choicest part of the offering for themselves. That was supposed to be delivered to God. They gave it for themselves. And secondly, they had women at the gate leading into the tabernacle, and they used them as temple prostitutes. That's, there's no other way to say it. That's exactly what they were doing. So what is happening is you have two of the most important priests at Shiloh doing what they were doing. And as I said last week, <clears throat> what the author in Sir Samuel is doing, called the principle of interchange, is showing us the sons of Eli and then showing us Samuel. And you see the contrast. And last week we read in verse 21, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And so there's Samuel. And then you read... You read in verse 26, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. We had just read that what in, in that passage in verse 26 where, where Eli is, is seeing and hearing and observing what his boys are doing as they shack up with these women as temple prostitutes. I hope you don't mind, mind me using the colloquial there because that's what they were doing. So you see, this contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the most important priest in Israel at that time, and Samuel. Look at verse 27. Are you with me on all this? Because if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand why well, this is really important. And there came a man of God to Eli. Now, the little phrase, a man of God, is used in the Old Testament, the early parts of the Old Testament, for a prophet, a spokesperson, a person who's going to give an oracle from God. He's not named. We don't know who he is. And as, as Israel continues to develop, the role of prophet is going to become more and more important. As a matter of fact, as we get to the monarchy, you will see that the kings will have in their court a prophet of God. And you will, for example, I'll fast forward a little bit. You might remember when King David, the key prophet in David's court is Nathan. Do you remember that name? Does that sound familiar? And then you go a little bit further into Israel's history. You have prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And then you get into the major prophets. There are four of those, like Jeremiah, Isaiah. Jeremiah and Isaiah both served in the courts of kings. And then you have Habakkuk, who served in the court of, of the kings. So, I mean, that becomes really important. But it isn't that, it's not that point yet. So this man of God, a prophet, speaking for God, comes to Eli and says, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Now, don't stumble over that. That doesn't mean his biological father. That means his great, 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 great grandfather. Is taking us back to 1446 BC when the descendant Ithamar, the son of Aaron, they were all given the responsibility. You, you know, if, if I say Aaronic priesthood, you've heard that, haven't you? That's the priest of Aaron. Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, is the first high priest, and all of his descendants are supposed to be the high priest. They're Levites. Moses and Aaron were Levites. And so the Levites now have the priestly function. That's all he's saying. Eli, sure. 
Jim, could you repeat the could you repeat the chapter and verse that you're reading? I'm in First Samuel chapter two, verse twenty-seven and twenty-eight. Thank you. Okay. Yes, thank you. I lost my train of thought. What was I? Um, <clears throat> well, anyway, the, 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 the Aaron and and all of his descendants were to be the Levitical priests, and that's all he's saying here. That man of God is saying. Didn't I establish that when they were still in Egypt, your people? Verse 28. And this is a marvelous verse because it summarizes for us what the priests were to do. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? So you see those three important duties to go to my altar. That's all that's involved with this. That's all that's involved in the ceremonial law, the altar, where, you know, it had four horns on it, and that's where the sacrifices were made and so on. Very important. Incense, the burning of incense, that's in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but in the holy place. You walk into the holy place. To the right is the table of showbread. To the left is the menorah. And in the center is the, the incense. The altar of incense, and that would be burned. That was to symbolize, as the incense is burned, that God is regarding this as these offerings as a sweet savor. It smell, it's 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 a way in which God is satisfied and pleased. You guys are to change that every day. That was their responsibility, among other things. And that where the ephod, the ephod included the way in which God blessed and communicated through through His priest to the people. So again, all this doing in this verse is summarizing what I put on the board here. These guys are really important. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? That's how the ESV translates that. Scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your son's above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. That takes us back to what we studied last week. So now God, through this man of God, this prophet, is accusing Eli of abusing the office for personal gain. Now, not Eli, there's no evidence that Eli was corrupt. But Eli did not Discipline his sons. Eli did not call his sons to account. Should he? Was he responsible for that? Yes. He's head over the whole system. Even if they aren't his sons, he should discipline them. But they are his sons, and he turns a blind eye. He doesn't do anything. Therefore, in God's eyes, Eli is corrupt. Isn't that the same sin Adam committed standing next to the false humans? Turning your face away from God. Yes. He should have screamed at the top of his lungs, No! Don't take it! But he didn't. He said, Thank you. Even he ate, took it too. Thank you for bringing that up. Gave me an opportunity to be reanimated in my response. So, are you, you you are you with me? Okay. Now look at look at verse thirty. Uh, look at verse thirty. It's extremely important. Therefore, 
Yahweh Elohim of Israel. That's the covenant name of God. I gave you the Hebrew there. Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. That means you better pay attention because he declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Whole days are coming. That is a key phrase in the prophets. You see that all over the prophets of the Old Testament. Days are coming, days are coming, days are coming. It's a pronouncement. When I will cut off your strength, the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. That's covenant curse. Let's summarize it. What does it mean? Your priesthood ends with you. None of your descendants will be a priest. And that's exactly what happens. The, the priesthood line through Eli ends when Eli dies, which we'll see in just a little bit. Therefore, God is going to shift the line from the line of Ithkar that goes to Eli, and ends with Eli, and shift it to Zadok. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you right now, Z-A-D-O-K, but God is changing. It's still the Aaronic priesthood, it's still the family of Aaron, but it's not the line that Eli was in, it's another line. And that the priesthood of Zadok is going to be really important. The priests of Zadok even serve in the temple during the millennial kingdom. That's in Ezekiel 40 through 48. So this shift is really important in biblical history. But what's God doing? Behold, days are coming. When your priestly line, this is summarizing, verse 31, days are coming when your priestly line will come to an end. Do you think, did God have the authority to do that? Absolutely he did. They're his priests. As he refers with that pronoun, you're my priests. And if you are corrupt and not doing, this whole system breaks down. So I'm shifting it. Now this, in, in so many ways, this would have been hard for Eli to hear, but at the same time, he should not be surprised at this. Because God is calling to account the most important line in this theocracy. If this isn't working right, the system doesn't work. People's sins are not being atoned for. The law is not being taught. It breaks down. That is why leaders are so important. Leaders are always called to a higher standard. And if a leader, whether it's a business leader, a religious leader, a political leader, is only interested in himself or herself, it's not going to work. A corrupt official is a self-centered, selfish, self-indulgent, narcissistic person. It's all about me. That's not leadership. And the two boys of Eli are manifesting that. And God's going to take their life. He's going to end the priestly line through Eli. Tragic. But they had enormous responsibilities, and God's calling them to account. Now, the Holy Spirit uh, <clears throat> did or did not exist at that time, so that they were fully aware not only of his direct commands, God's direct command to the priesthood line, but did the presence of the Holy Spirit also convict them, or did they? That, that was not one of the functions of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. What's that? That was not one of the yeah. functions. So, so. When they heard this from God, that was sufficient to let them know, you can't do this. That's right. 
That's right. God is speaking through this man of God, a little phrase we saw where he's a prophet, giving the oracle of God to Eli and, 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 and the line. Yeah, no, and I don't want to elaborate on this, but the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is not the same as in the, in the New. There isn't the Holy Spirit indwelling people. Only he equips them for special service, kings, and certain very specific roles or responsibilities. Indwelling the Holy Spirit is a New Testament concept, part of the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. Verse 32, then. Are you with me, everybody? Okay. Verse 32. Then in distress you will look with envious eye at all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. There shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes, grieve out his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. That that one that he's referring to in number in verse thirty three is Abiathar. We will be in, we already seen him, but we're going to see him later. He will not be killed. He will survive. He will be loyal to David. Saul will kill him, and that's coming up much later in in our study. <clears throat> But uh, it, it's just referring to Biathar, and when we get to him, I'll point this out again. The only one that survives is Abiathar, and we'll read about him a little bit later. Verse 34, and this that shall come upon your two sons, now we learn their names, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. That will occur in chapter 4. <clears throat> And you'll, you'll read about that. It's the Philistines that will do it. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. And that faithful priest is Zadok, D-A-D-O-K, and his line. That Z, that's the new line of the, of, the, of the chief priest. It's from the line that God is shifting because of the unfaithfulness of Issachar's line and Eli at this point. <clears throat> Uh, where am I? Who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind? Isn't that marvelous? Because in the theocracy, the priests are to represent God's heart and God's mind. In other words, what God wants for his people. They're the key to the system. And if they're not fulfilling the responsibility, the system isn't going to work. The people's sins won't be atoned for the people won't be learning the law. That's a catastrophe. These are God's covenant people. The key to God's covenant people is the law and the ark. And if the priests aren't doing what they're supposed to do, the system doesn't work. So that's why God calls them to account. And when we, we finish then, this is really important. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That's really... That statement is pregnant with incredible meaning for the rest of the Bible. <laughs> because the priest of the line of Zadok shall go in and out before my anointed forever. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah, English Messiah, forever. And this, the, the significance of this is this line of Zadok will serve the Messiah in this millennial kingdom, which is detailed for us in Ezekiel 40 through 48. 
So what when when they heard this, they didn't understand all that it meant. They didn't understand the, the comprehensive nature of this. But the rest of the Bible helps us to understand the full meaning of this declaration, this oracle from God about the line of Zadok. And they will be Zadok and his line will be faithful to the Lord, as you will see. And then concluding, and everyone left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver. Loaf of bread shall say, please put me in one of the priest places that I may eat a morsel of bread. In other words, again, what he's talking about there is the line of Eli. His, his, his remaining line. They, they're kicked out of the priesthood. And they're going to beg for the basic things of life. They will loot point. And it's kind of a euphemism there, some figurative language. The point of verse 36 is they're going to lose everything. They will become not priests, but beggars. So this is God through this, quote, man of God, close quote, that we just read about, delivering an oracle of judgment on Eli and his line. Why? Because of what we studied last week. They were corrupt, self-centered, self-indulgent, narcissistic spiritual leaders, and that is not what God wants, and he will call them to account, and he does. So this is of extraordinary importance for so much of the rest of the Old Testament, but even extraordinarily important for understanding even things that are in the New Testament about Jesus and his coming kingdom and all that. So you, when you just read that, you don't understand that. But when you read it with the entire the entire revelation of God and the rest of Scripture, you say, wow, this is really important what God's just declared here. Eli's line's done. They go from priests to beggars. And, and we'll read more about Zadok's line coming up. And when you get into David and Solomon's kingdom in, in First and Second Chronicles particularly, they're really important. But that's beyond what we're studying. So now my question is, are you with me? Can you summarize this? Yes. Were Eli the two sons, were that the only offspring of Eli? <coughs> of Eli? That's a good question. Um, because that would be, if they were the only ones, that is the end. It, it is the end. It is there the end. No there are no others. There are no other recorded sons of Eli. And so I have to, I, just because there weren't, it doesn't mean there weren't. But there were no other recorded sons of Eli that were in the priesthood. But you are right. When those two die and Eli dies, that line is ended. And that, that's the importance of this. And we're going to read Eli will die in chapter 4, uh, as we'll see a little bit later on. I hope we'll get to that today. But, yeah, that's, that's a good question. All right. You with me? Yeah, go ahead. to go back to the handout. Uh-huh. Look at the timeline. Yeah, the timeline. Yep, yep. kind of like at the end of Eli's life. Well, we're, we're not quite there yet. He will die. The Battle of Aphek is a, is a battle that the, the, the Israelis fight with the Philistines. The Philistines will win. It's a disaster you'll see. And Eli's two sons are killed in that battle. They come back and tell the news that his two sons are die, are dead, and he falls over dead. Okay. That's in 1104 so B.C. Yeah. When it okay. says under Eli, D, 
He, he will die in 1104 BC. That's the Battle of Aphek. He will die right after that. So we're, we're pretty close to that, but no, we're not quite there yet in terms of the chronology. That's a good question. Thank you. You're paying attention to the handouts I give you. That's really good. So we didn't waste paper there. That's good. All right. Everybody online okay? All right. Oh, silence yeah. means, okay. Silence means understanding in my book. Let's shift to chapter three, where now the focus is back on Samuel. As I said, the author, it's called the principle of interchange. The author is going back and forth. Sons of Eli, Samuel. Sons of Eli, Samuel. Sons of Eli, now on Samuel. And chapter four will be about the end of Eli's line. So chapter three is about Samuel. It's a very familiar story. This is what kids learn in Sunday school. When I was in Sunday school and the earth's crust was just beginning to harden, I was taught this by my Sunday school teacher using, using flannel graphs. Yeah. None of you know what a flannel graph is, oh, yeah. but it's an old tool of teaching. Now, of course, we're much more sophisticated with all the technology. But I remember that. I remember those stories with the teacher who had this flannel graph board and put these little characters up and watch it. It was so neat to see all this stuff. Now it's flashy technology and all the stuff. And the kids are, yeah, my games are much better than that. So that's how they respond. Isn't that cynical of me? I apologize for that. Verse 1, now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Two phrases, ministering to Yahweh, ministering to the Lord. What's he doing? He's a young boy. Remember, we, we argued last week, he started when he was six. He's now probably 11, maybe 10. It's hard to know exactly. Well, probably he's helping Eli when every day they went into the holy place and changed the bread. Maybe he's helping Eli. Maybe he's carrying the incense every day as he and Eli go in and change the incense in the altar of incense. Maybe he's helping Eli because every day they would go in and in the morning fill the menorah with olive oil so that it would burn throughout the day. Maybe he's helping clean the altar. So we don't know, but he would be assisting, helping Eli in what he does as a priest. In fact, like I priest. Continuing, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. That's an extraordinary statement. If the priesthood is corrupt, there will be no order from the Lord. That's why God has to send a specific, quote, man of God, close quote, to give the oracle. That's about to change. This is going to all change with Samuel. So the text is just summarizing for us. Here you see Samuel in training at Shiloh. But the desperate condition of Israel is the word of the Lord was rare. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody's listening. Because God's key people are corrupt. So don't expect his blessing when his key people are corrupt. Which is a very important thing for us to remember. If leaders are corrupt, don't expect God to bless. It's not going to happen. And so here you have this crucial time. God's about to change this. God always 
puts his person in place to effect change. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. What's the lamp of God? You walk into the holy place in the tabernacle on your left is the menorah, the lamp of God. Every morning they told the, So the lamp of God had not yet gone. What does that mean? It's early morning. Because about 6, 7 in the morning that they change it. So this is early morning. You know, when you wake up in the morning, about 3 a.m., and you can't go back to sleep. Anyway, it's supposed to be a joke. Nobody gets it. Anyway, the lamp of God had not. So it's early when Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So what does that mean? It's really quite interesting. He is sleeping in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but he's sleeping in the holy place. That's where Samuel's sleeping. The Bible doesn't tell us why he's doing that. Why is he sleeping there? Eli isn't. But he is. That's where he's sleeping. Then the Lord, notice it's Yahweh, then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli, here I am, for you called me. But he did not. I did not call, lie down again. Now I want you to go back to the end of verse 1. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Is that changing? The Lord is calling somebody. The Lord is speaking again. Because he has a faithful remnant. It's Samuel, whose mother Hannah was an extraordinary woman. Knew the law was taught her. We studied that last week. So the fruit of her commitment to Yahweh is now manifested in her son. And God is speaking to Samuel. But the word of the Lord was rare. So what does Samuel assume? My boss is calling me. So he runs out of the tabernacle to wherever Eli's home is. What do you want, Eli? I didn't call you. Go lie down. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called him again, Samuel. And Samuel rose, went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. I did not call you, son. Lie down again. Verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. That's really, really important. That doesn't mean Samuel didn't know about the Lord. Good night. He's in the tabernacle. The Hebrew word there is know intimately, personally, relationally. That's what it means. Samuel knew all about God. But he did not have that. He's a young boy. He didn't have that level of intimacy with God. He didn't have that personal, intimate fellowship with God. A lot of 11, 10, 11-year-olds don't know about God. And they're learning what it means to walk with God. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. That takes you back to verse 1. The word of the Lord is rare in those days. That's about to change. And Yahweh called him again the third time. Verse 8, he arose and went to Eli. Here I am, for you called me. Eli perceived that the Lord was calling this young man. Therefore Eli said, go lie down. If he calls you, say, speak, Lord. Notice it's Yahweh. Speak, Yahweh, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, do not miss 
the clause at the beginning of verse 10. And Yahweh came and stood, calling as at other times. Then, this is a theophany. That's a word that theologians make up to explain what just happened. This is a physical manifestation of God. I would argue it's the second person of the Trinity, which he does throughout the Old Testament before the Incarnation, appearing. It said it doesn't just say the Lord called. It says the Lord came and stood. This is a theophany. Calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That's kind of a Hebraism means. I'm going to do something that nobody has heard or seen before. Implication is, Samuel is the key to what I'm about to do. God calls people at strategic times, and he calls the person he's prepared. Samuel's young, but now listen, his mother had dedicated him to the Lord. His mother had prayed for him. Had, had As she nursed him, as she weaned him, I know she talked about the Lord, taught him about the Lord, told him everything about the Lord. She delivers him up at age six to Eli. He's ready. But he's ready to, to, to develop this intimate, personal relationship with God because Samuel will be a priest, a prophet, and a judge. He's a key transitional figure between the end of the period of the judges and the beginning of the monarchy in Israel. And this is what God is doing. Because what God, that statement, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, is this enormous transition of what is about to happen in the theocracy. God's about to change everything. And the linchpin of this is Samuel. The word of the Lord is no longer going to be rare. The word of the Lord is going to pervade Israel, as you're going to see, because of Samuel. In the most desolate times, God raises someone up to be his person. In this case, it's Samuel. <clears throat> can you use words now that describe Samuel as he has been prepared for this role? Yes. What are those words? To describe how he's been prepared? It's how God has prepared Samuel. <coughs> what has he done to Samuel that he is already <coughs> Well, that's hard to, it's hard to be real specific there. That's why I said a few moments ago, it seems to me his mother has played a really key role in this preparation yeah, for him. Kins can play a role. Like oh, absolutely. We and are, we are kins to others. Yeah. His dad, Elkanah, who I would argue also is a very godly man because of what we read about him, 
But it, it just seems to me his parents, especially Hannah, but his parents played a really important role in preparing him for this. Because he's still a young boy. He's, he's not 25 years old here. He's 10 or 11, approximately. But it, it is that preparation by his parents. And now, working, working with Eli and all of this, this part of this preparation of hearing and seeing and, and visualizing all that is a part of the system that he's learning. Not only lecture, but learning as he does it. So God has prepared him for this, but I would, I would argue most importantly that God has been preparing his heart so it's very malleable to be shaped and molded by God because he doesn't resist this. He does what Eli says. Go down one more time, lie down. And if God said, I'm ready, your servant, here's what, in effect, what do you want? I'm ready. And so as we read in verse 12, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli at that all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. What's the first job Samuel has? Is to deliver this oracle of judgment to Eli. Would you want that as your first assignment from God? The first thing I want you to do, Samuel, is go tell Eli the oracle of judgment. He did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli, the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. There's no hope. It doesn't matter what. They're done. They've crossed that line. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell a vision to Eli. I would be. You imagine an 11-year-old telling that to his boss? But Eli called Samuel. Samuel, my son, here I am. What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me, all that he told you. Samuel told him everything, hid nothing from him. And he, Eli, said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good. He passes the first test. He does what God wanted him to do. He delivers the oracle of judgment to Eli. I love, <coughs> excuse me, I love verse 19, 20, and 21, those verses. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, verse 1. Samuel did not know the Lord. Now he does. He's walking intimately in loving obedience with God. Notice the second part of verse 19. And none of his words, let none of his words fall to the ground. That's a Hebrewism. Everything he's saying, people are listening. He's got the attention of the nation. We know that because of verse 20. And all of Israel, 
from Dan. Dan is way up north to Beersheba, right on the edge of the Negev Desert, 150 miles. From Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. That is a very important piece of information. God is changing the theocracy. Because not only the priests, but there now is the office of a prophet. And the prophet will speak to the priests and speak to the people. That's Samuel. Samuel's not a writing prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or the others, but he speaks God's word to the nation. He will be the vehicle God will use to establish the monarchy. Because as you know, he will anoint Saul and then later anoint David and all that. But this is really important. All of Israel knows about Samuel. And his words aren't falling on deaf ears. His words, people are listening. And now all of the nation from Dan way up north, the edge of the land grants down to Beersheba, the edge of the land grant of Judah, the Negev Desert, know that Samuel is what? A prophet of the Lord. He speaks for God. When Samuel speaks, he speaks for God. And how old is he now? It's, uh, I'd say late teens, maybe 20 by now. It's really hard to be precise there. Until we get just a little bit later, we're going to be able to, to figure out his age. But it's, you know, these are years, this is years now. In today's world, a 20-year-old speaking to you may not have the same. Yes, right. Well, my, my daughter said we, we got a lot of graduations this spring, and some of the girls that were graduating that are either part of extended family or friends, were, she, Joanna made this statement, you know, girls graduating from high school today look like 30-year-olds. And that was a really, because I we looked at that and said, you know, that is really true. Compared to the pictures of graduates of high school when we graduated, which of course was two and a half centuries ago. But you see that, and then you see these, these girls. I mean, that's really interesting. Because, you know, most people say now 80 is the new 60. People are 80 is the new 60. Have you heard that, Fred? Well, anyway, I don't know why I'm saying all that, Fred. You're right. Okay, let's go forward. Verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now look, all this, these verses are saying this is reestablished. Because now you have faithful priests and you have a prophet at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle is. So the system is reinstituted. Because God has faithful people doing what he wants them to do. But it says, by the word of the Lord. This chapter opened with this statement. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. This chapter ends with what? Everybody knows that God is speaking again to his people through Samuel. The word of the Lord is active again in the nation because God has faithful people walking in loving obedience with him, saying it's not about me, it's about you. I am here to serve you in the name and power of God. Samuel is an extraordinary figure 
and we're just getting started with him. But it's an extraordinary figure in the history of Israel, this transitional figure. And he's, he's one of those guys, I cannot wait to meet him in heaven. I, I have 9,702 questions I want to ask. 1,100 of those are of Samuel. All right, yes. Two questions. Um, in I, when in I learned that the wrath of God is going to happen to house, his household, why didn't he try to ask for forgiveness one more time? Or why did he say, this is the Lord, let him do whatever seems good to him? Why did he ask for forgiveness? Why did he try to correct the mistakes or do anything about it? Or ask God not to do things to him like he was uh, stuff? And the other one is... Um, the statement, let none of his words fall to the ground. Uh, in, in that area over there, in that culture, that word means that his prophecies uh, became, all of the prophecies has been fulfilled, and and also means that he never said any word that was uh, a lie. You know, that all both, his words both, were both of those. Yeah. What he's <laughs> doing is speaking for God, and everything he says comes about. Yeah, this is what the word means. So that, that's means right. the same, right? That's right. Okay. That's so right. This is the... The culture there, this is the word means. It's yeah, it's a, it's a Hebrewism, but it's it's a saying that everything he's saying is true and everything he proclaims come to pass. Yeah, I grew up with that. So okay, I, yeah. I mean, it's really, it's it's a very affirming statement, yeah. but it's also declaring what we already know. He speaks for God. Which Everybody is, sees that. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Now, the first question is a little more difficult because the text is totally silent on it. Eli's about 80 years old at this time, close to that. He's very old. He's extremely heavy. He's very obese. And his, he's watched his boys just do horrible, dastardly things to abuse everything that God is standing for. And I kind of think his sense was, this is hopeless. God's done with my boys. He's delivered the oracle of judgment. What's interesting to me is he doesn't, personally, for just personal, ask God for mercy and grace, as David does. And Saul even will do that, for goodness sakes. But he doesn't. And I, I cannot answer that question definitively. I just don't know, because the text is totally silent on that. Uh, actually, as it applied to us, uh, do we always ask for forgiveness? Do we always repent? Even when things... Yes. This is yes. I think... You know, you know, if you have a relationship with God based on faith in Jesus Christ, you never, you never can go to God and ask for forgiveness, cleansing, and in a repentant spirit. That's always something you can do. But, but for, for, we should not follow that example. That's what I'm saying. We don't what? We should not follow the example of Eli. Oh no, I, I, no, Eli is not a good role model for anybody in any situation <laughs> under any circumstance. Yeah. Okay. You know, I think Eli walked with God. I think Eli knew God. I really do. But his apathy and complacency in his role is evident in how he was administering things, but also in the life of his two sons. I think we, this is an, an accusatory statement. It's just a factual statement that Eli was not a good dad. And I, I, that's not accusatory. That's just a statement of fact. He was not a good dad. I think he was he was a bad guy, you know, like he was even his response was bad from the way he, he knew God, obviously, because he's the one who pointed to Samuel that Samuel that 
you know, this is not yeah. excluding you. Yeah. But it not stop him from doing bad things or acting bad or right. being a bad father or even not asking for forgiveness, right? That's right. All right, everybody with me? I'd love to give you a thought paper on chapter three, but <laughs> that would be wasting breath because it would never get done. But if you if you can summarize our authors with a statement, God is changing things in Israel through Samuel. And Samuel is one of those remarkable figures in the Bible. Now chapter four is about the Philistines, and we're only going to get started on it. The Philistines are going to capture the Ark of the Covenant. But what's really fascinating about chapter 4 is the absence of Samuel. It's 1104 B.C. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They, Israel, encamped at Ebenezer, the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now, on the map that I gave you, and I, guys online, you're going to have to look at your own, but it's just, Aphek is up on the north, just on the edge of the Ephraim land grab. So it's, it's quite important because if you control Aphek, you control the entrance into the mountains of Samaria. So that's a really key place. That's where the battle is going to be fought. Now, do we need a refresher, maybe we do, on who the Philistines are? Is everybody getting, you know, the Philistines, you, you kind of see them. David's going to neutralize the Philistines. They're going to kind of fade from the picture. But now they're the major. They're a group of people who settle in the area of Gaza. If you've heard of the Gaza Strip, you read about that in the newspaper and all that stuff. They settled, they had five major cities. And Ascalon, Ekron, Gath, a few others, okay? They are a thorn in Israel's flesh. Because where they are located, you can, you can see on the map, Ekron, Ashdod, Gath, and so on. They, they are right on the edge of the land grant of Dan and right on the edge of the land grant of Judah. They're harassing Dan and Judah all the time, constantly. They've been doing that for, for, for about 100 years. Now they invade the rest of Israel. So this is a call to battle. The integrity and security of Israel is at stake here. The Philistines are there at this point in their history. They're mortal enemy. So they've invaded the land. They're not just, they're not just you know, these, these quick zeroing in on Judah, grabbing some animals, and going back home. That's not what this is. This is a full-scale invasion of Israel. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, so the troops, these are Israeli troops, they come back to the Israeli camp in Ebenezer, now notice what happens. The elders of Israel. Now it's it's a little hard to know who all this is, but most expositors contend that the elders are the tribal leaders and the clan leaders of Israel. Because remember, you have 12 tribes, and every tribe is made up of numerous clans. Some of them are named, some of them are not. So these are the leaders. Plus, possibly some of the Levitical spiritual leaders 
as well. So these are the top leaders of Israel. Because remember, there's no central government. There's no king. The tribes are how everything's organized. So these are the tribal clan leaders and probably some Levites. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a good question. Why are we losing? Now, implied in that question is this assumption. We are the covenant people of God. We are God's people. The Philistines are not. They're polytheistic raiders, thoroughly pagan. They practice child sacrifice. Why are they winning and why are we losing? So they come up with this idea. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. How are these political and spiritual leaders of Israel treating the Ark? Like a talisman. Do you know what a talisman is? Like a, a magic rabbit's foot. Do you know what a rabbit's foot is? You ever, when I grew up, one of my friends always carried a rabbit's foot. I had a, I had a, when I played baseball, I had a member of my team who always wore the same socks. He never took them off. He never washed them. As long as he played baseball that year, he didn't wash them until the end of the season. It was a good luck charm. These political and spiritual leaders are treating the Ark of the Covenant as a good lark charm. They're trying to manipulate God. We're going to bring the Ark, which is the symbol of our relationship with God. That whole system is about the Ark. That's a talisman. It's a rabbit's foot. It's magic. When it's in our camp, God will never allow us to be defeated. Isn't that the assumption of this? Let's bring the ark, and God will never allow us to be defeated. <clears throat> Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts. That title, the Lord of Hosts, is first used in the book of Samuel. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. Here it's appearing again. It's used over and over and over again in the prophet. Jeremiah uses it, I think, 19 times. But they're using it here. Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of the hosts of the armies of heaven. And when the ESV correctly so the people have sent to Shiloh and brought. That is the verb that's used when the Levites carry the ark. So what that tells us is they correctly carried the ark from Shiloh to Ebenezer, the military camp of the Israelis. The covenant of the Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the hosts of heaven, who is enthroned in cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, I don't know about you. When I read that sentence, I'm not optimistic this is going to turn out good. Are you? 
They're treating the ark as a piece of magic, a rabbit's foot. And Hophni and Phineas, those two, quote, godly, close quote, men, that is supposed to be a cynical, biting, accusatory statement, are with the ark. If you want to know what happens, you have to come back next week. Are you with me? This is an illustration. I'm serious. This is an illustration of how low the leadership has come. And as I said when we started this chapter, Samuel's name is absent in this chapter. We don't know where he is. We, we don't know what the context is. But he's not, he's not here. He'll come up in just a, a minute. But right now he is. This is one of the low points in Israel's history. We'll see what God does next week. All right? I'm going to pray. I can't believe the hour's up already. We didn't get very far, but that's all your fault because you asked all those questions. I take no blame. for. I'm just kidding. I love your questions. Father, we thank you for just a reminder when things are at their lowest, when things seem to have no hope whatsoever, you raise up a person to be your person, your remnant, to call your people back to faithful, loving obedience to you. That man was Samuel. His mother prayed for him. I believe his mom and dad taught him and nurtured him the things of the Lord. And then when Hannah brought him up at age six, and as she fulfilled her vow, she fulfilled her promise. She dedicated him to the Lord. And he served you for the rest of his life. He's a tremendous illustration of how you raise someone up to accomplish what seems impossible. The word of the Lord was rare, no longer. Samuel will be known from Dan to Beersheba as a man of God, a prophet of God. He speaks for God. Everything he says is true, and everything he says comes to pass. Lord, in our country right now, we need spiritual leaders. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about spiritual leaders who are deeply committed to the Lord, calling your people back to a walk of loving obedience, teaching and instructing them the ways of God, teaching them the deep things, not superficial, shallow ditties, but the deep things of God, because sound doctrine produces godly living. People need to know who God is, know what he's done, know what he plans to do, and be a part of it, because we're overcomers. We're on the triumphant side. We need to understand that and live like that. Deeply committed to you, willing to stand for you and represent you. That's what I hope is true for each one of these men online and here in the room. May we be the men of God that you call us to be. Training and equipping our children, the next generation, our grandchildren, making an impact in our churches for the glory of God, for the purposes of God. So we trust each one to you. Again, think of Glenn. Be with him. Trust that this will go well, and he'll, he'll, through his therapy and everything that will follow, have a quick rebound. So we commit him to you as well. So dismiss us with your blessing. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.